Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm your host. That's B I Z A R O. For anyone who wants to find us on Instagram, you can find us at Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs. You can DM us there. You can also use the cell phone that's on there to text us if you have questions or you want to be on the podcast. Again, that's on our Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. If you want to find me, it's at Justin Bazaar, B I Z A R O. R O. And more importantly, you can find us on Spotify or anywhere else you grow yourself through podcasts. So share it there, listen to the episodes there, or anywhere else, like I said, you grow yourself through podcasts. With that being said, I am happy to introduce today Nader Muadi of Muadi Craft Distillery. How are you doing today? Did I get that right? You did get that right. Uh, yes. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. And I think this is incredible. It's the first one I've ever done in palestine or the west bank or bethlehem and so like this is very exciting this is what i'm trying to do with the podcast is is just branch out and get world perspective as entrepreneurship and and more worldly views especially in the united states we have such um myoptic perspective i would say um of the world of entrepreneurism and of of democracy and so i think that when we talk about stuff and we share stuff on an international level, like we're doing, we're helping entrepreneurs all around the world as well as um, where I am in the United States. So thank you very much. So let's talk about you, your business. Um, I mean, I've got to imagine it's different being an entrepreneur there than it is here, but I guess we'll figure that out as we go. Um, So let's just talk about your story. How did um, Muadi uh, Craft Distillery start? Um, and Natter, how did you become an entrepreneur? How did your, I mean, did your family grow up entrepreneur? So let's start with your story. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the States actually. I grew up, um, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, and, uh, I'm one of four boys and we grew up in my father's, uh, auto upholstery shop, which is still operating today. And, um, uh, he instilled in me a passion early on, uh, to want to make things with my hands. I always liked going there and cutting material and ripping out headliners and car seats and stuff like that. Um, later on when I got older, my dad was always trying to force me, you know, down the line of working smart and not hard. And he actually didn't want us to become entrepreneurs. Uh, he wanted us to, you know, get a good education and then become like employees, either in like a company or whatever. Uh, just have a stable income because he actually you know, spent his whole life working hard, breaking his back, and he didn't want us to go through the same thing. Um, but I mean, at the same time, you know, keeping us around him in his shop, I mean, I, I was always driven to want to do something with my hands. And, um, you know, I, I saw that he had uh, a degree of financial independence that when I grew older, I kind of envied. Um, when I grew older, I, I moved to Palestine. I began working in an international humanitarian organization um and i came here wanting to do you know to help people out and to be in the field and to you know to really make a difference um but because i was a native american speaker a native english speaker i was always um you know stuck behind a desk pushing paper writing proposals basically working as like the editor-in-chief of whatever organization i worked for um and for me that got really you know lame and it wasn't self-satisfying let's say um so I, I was thinking of another way where I can create something that can help my people, help me be in the field, really make a difference, and fulfill these different cravings. Um, I love the Arak, which is uh, it's a Levantine anise-flavored spirit, which is at the cornerstone of the Palestinian cuisine. I'm, I'm really passionate about it. 
Um, I had the drive to want to do something with my hands. I want to be financially independent and I want to make a difference for, for the communities, for the farmers that I work with. Um, so all those things came together just in the idea of, you know, setting up a distillery because I couldn't find Adek that, you know, met my, my needs or the way, let's say my taste per se. Um, so and I've that's spelled A R A K. Is that correct? Would you're the, the, the liquor or whatever we're talking about, the distilled product. Correct. And yeah, what is yeah. that made of? You talk about the farmer. So let's, I, I don't want to take you off your story, but what is it made of? Cause it is different. And I think it's so different than the rest of the world. And I agree with you. It is so the heart and soul of uh, Palestinian cuisine. I think we need to talk yeah. about it a little bit. So if you don't mind, I mean, I want you to tell your story, but I also want to hear about this. Cause I'm like, this stuff is really cool. Cause it's so different. For sure. Um, Eric is the oldest distilled spirit in the world. It's like the mother spirit of all distilled spirits. Um, it, it goes back about 1,100 years ago. It was first founded in Baghdad and Iraq um, and soon spread throughout like the Levant. Uh, so it's, it's drunk by Palestinians, by Jordanians, Lebanese, Syrians, Iraqis till this day. And uh, almost every uh, country in the Mediterranean basin has an anise-flavored spirit like, like Arak. Um, but I mean, for Arak, it's made from grapes. So first we make a white wine as, as the base wine. And then we triple distill it. Um, and the first distillation is basically to concentrate it to like a crude spirit. The second distillation, we make cuts and we, you know, remove all the volatile compounds and just, you know, keep the pure ethanol and esters that we're looking for. And then the third distillation, we add aniseed, which is the primary flavor. Um, so we include it in the still. We fire it up and we let the ethanol and the anisol, which is anise oil, basically vaporize and condense into one liquid. We put it aside to age in clay pots for about a year. And then we proof it down to 53% alcohol um, by volume, and we bottle. So I just want to make note of this. So when you first started, like you had to wait at least a year to sell your product because you had to wait for the point of where it's in the clay pots. Is that correct? So your first year of business as an entrepreneur is literally like literally starting to just stockpile inventory is that i mean so how do you how do you wrap your mind around that how do you go into business knowing that you're not going to be able to sell anything for a year i mean i i didn't really get into the business at first with the idea of getting into the business it was attic was kind of like a rabbit hole for me like it, it pulled me um in the trajectory of a business I and mean, i got into it just because i, I liked attic and i couldn't find attic that, that you know was at the quality of what i was looking for so I was making it for me and for friends, but then people started offering me money for it. I, you know, little by little gradually started increasing the, the amount that I was producing. Um, but I mean, for me coming into the market, uh, there wasn't really a premium product segment in Palestine before I came around. Um, so there wasn't really a rush for me to like, you know, get something out there to try and have something. For me, I was really taking my time because um, what was out there was like conventional attic, which is like a, a whole different species. Um, so for me to bring back like traditional authentic adak, um, because there wasn't anyone around doing it, I, I didn't really feel the urge. So I was really taking my time, you know, just I was getting everything correct. I spent a lot of time on the labels, the branding, the marketing, the, the logo. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be like perfect with all the details, make sure everything was in order before I hit the market so I can give a good impression. Okay. So let's talk about the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, because it just sure. like you're, you're basically trying to go around the world helping people, okay? Helping humans um, and, and trying to do right for 
the group of humans you identify with. And this is an interesting thing to me. You're trying to go there to help people, but the reality is, is you end up pushing paper and mostly red tape, for lack of a better term. But entrepreneurism becomes the ingenuity that allows you to actually do what you came there to do, but it's you being an entrepreneur and you're going to create jobs, you're going to create um, opportunity, you're going to create sub-businesses around it. There's going to be need accountants in Palestine that are now supported by your business. And you just talked about the marketing and the glass bottles yeah. you get and the farmers and all that. So it's an interesting thing I want to note here. And I talked about this on the last podcast um, with David Richmond, which is about exporting mosquito net or taking the knowledge somewhere and actually building the factory and becoming an entrepreneur and overseas and then lifting the people up. It's not only about sending money overseas, it's about exporting our knowledge along with us and building businesses where we go. And this ties perfectly that conversation because that's what happened here. So I was born outside um, Philadelphia in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So I guess a little north, I guess another city, not quite even close to the size of Philadelphia. But so I can relate to it. So it's quite a leap to be like, I'm going to stay in Palestine. I'm going to have a business here and I'm going to decide to to basically if I'm going to put a business here, put my roots here. So tell me about like how you come about this. Like I I understand the urge to go there and do what you can and and be helpful, but let's talk about why. You know, like what's going on inside of you? Um what's like this drive to help humans? Um to help Palestine, for example, in the West Bank, like how, where did this drive come from? I mean, first, I'm a Palestinian American, and um, you know, even though I'm born in the states, I'm born to two Palestinian uh, immigrants. Um, yep, living the, the American country. dream, right? Yeah, I mean, to. they didn't, they didn't really come to the states by by choice. I mean, they they really had no other choice. I mean, uh, yeah, when you have conflict, you have an economic downturn. There's not many opportunities to to prosper and live and provide for your families um so many young men were leaving the country looking for work anywhere abroad so they can send remittances back and support their families and that's what my father and his brothers were doing um so and he came to the states you know looking for work but i mean not because he didn't like his country or because he didn't want to live here it's just that you know the the economic political situation didn't allow him to prosper in his own country so he had to leave um so he kind of like raised us with the, you know, with the, the strong ties or yearning to go back. Um, and I, as a child, I only went back like when I was 10 years old. But I mean, it was probably, I mean, that, that experience for me, like I grew up on stories about the homeland. But when I went back in 2000 or 1994, it was, I was 10 years old. Um, you know, it was a very utopian experience where I saw that the homeland wasn't just, you know, fairy tales in my bedtime stories. It was like, it was a real place. And, I got to see the places and the names and the people who he was talking about when he put us to bed. Um, so for me, I mean, that, that was the experience that really connected me and made me want to go back. Um, and also because this situation here hasn't been resolved and it's, uh, you know, the longest military occupation in the world. And it's, uh, you know, it's getting worse year by year. We're just going down a, a negative trajectory. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that always picks at me and, and makes me want to do something that can hopefully help um, so, I mean, that was really, I think, the driving factors that made me come back. Um, regarding, I mean, like wanting to help out my people, I mean, the communities or the people, the families that I'm working with, um, they're essentially the same people who, you know, I'm, I'm working 
to support through my humanitarian work. I, this is still a side hustle for me. I mean, I still have a full-time job where I work for a humanitarian organization during the day um, in Jerusalem. But, I mean, uh, we're working for the same communities. Because, I mean, the farmers that I'm supporting, they're also in this area of the West Bank called Area C, which is under full Israeli military control. and They're subject to um, military law. And um, they're at risk of forced displacement. They're always being harassed and attacked by soldiers. And the environment in which they're trying to cultivate their land, it's um, very conducive of pushing people out. There's a lot of push factors and very few pull factors. So for me, I thought that you know if I can create a business that can make a value-added product um, off of their agricultural produce, I can therefore create a financial incentive for them to remain steadfast um, and resilient on their land. Um, so that was sort of the, the the impact I was looking at. I mean, it wasn't so much you know looking at like trying to support accountants or bottle manufacturers. I mean, I, I get my bottles from Italy. Unfortunately, we don't have any bottle factories here in Palestine. Um, I think for me, the biggest like uh, you know to give way to get back to the community is really working with the farmers because I, I really am wanting to make authentic Palestinian arak. Uh, I use authentic, you know, meaning natural Palestinian ingredients. So I only use Palestinian grapes and Palestinian anise. Um, and I get them from different areas throughout the West Bank, whether it's Hebron or Bethlehem or Janine. Um, so for me, really, that's the way that I feel like I'm giving back to the community. So, I mean, it, it was that that humanitarian urge. And, and again, I'm very, I don't really trump this in my marketing because I, I don't want to look like I'm commoditizing the conflict and trying to monetize and profit from it in my, you know, in, in my branding. So it's sort of like a, a backseat. And, and I don't want people to drink my addict because it's Palestinian or because they support Palestine. I want them to drink it because they enjoy it. Because I, I really put my heart and soul into the spirit and I want people to appreciate it for what it is. Um, but for me, I mean, that, that, that definitely was a, a motivating factor in the background, I can say, in the back of my head. Yeah, yeah. and I want to anchor everyone so they understand. It's, um, I can't remember what it is in Greek. And I should know just because my ex... Uh, fiance, she's Greek and they have it, but it's basically like Sambuca in Italian. It's that same anise, and that's I think what you're talking about that yeah, yeah. same flavor. Um, it's almost sure. like black licorice, uh, for lack like of a better Uzo. term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's a it's an after dinner drink. At least Italians we drink it because it helps settle the stomach and it helps digest, just like pepper does. And it's a very mm -hmm. soothing. It's not quite sweet, but it's like I don't know how to describe it, but it's just. It's awesome, and we put a coffee bean in ours usually, like, at least my family yeah. does. But it's like that type of thing. So I just want to anchor this to the Middle East, or I mean the Mediterranean. It's not just the Middle East. It's like this whole area of coastal communities, like in Italy. I'm from Naples, For coastal sure. community that had this type of liqueurs and spirits um, that spread a little bit inland, but that's where they anchored, um, and, the, and the spice um, uh, anise. Yeah. And I mean, so... Go ahead. It fits with the Mediterranean diet. I mean, it's part of what our food is, whether you're Italian or French or Greek or, um, you know, Tunisian or Palestinian. I mean, we, we've all gravitated towards anise um, as, as our beverage when we when we eat our food. Because I think the, the way we eat, I mean, of course, we have our different cuisines, but we do share, I think, like the, the tapas mentality where we, you know, we have a lot of appetizers. We don't have like one meal. We have like several dishes on the table like sometimes upwards of 10 different dishes on the table and we're taking bites and pieces out of them and i think the reason anise is you know um let's say synonymous with this region with the mediterranean 
is because that's how we eat. And, and when you have all these different dishes, they have different contending flavor profiles. Um, so if you were to jump into one dish and dive immediately into another, um, you won't get the most out of those dishes in terms of flavor because you're going to be stacking those flavors on your palate. So anise works as a balance. Absolutely. It also brings like, uh, it, it creates like a homogenous meal. It brings, it ties everything together. Um, and it thrives off of diversity because there's nothing remotely related to it on the table in terms of our meals. So it, it creates that counterbalance. And at the same time, it's a palate cleanser. It, it, when you were jump into one dish, you would take a sip and then like it resets your palate so you can get the most out of the next dish. Yeah, I agree with you uh, 100%. And um, it's also like it, it, it refreshes your palate also and it helps allow the flavors to, I don't even know, it, we drink it later, but I also, it is a cleanser between meals, like also I feel like, um, and it helps refresh things. I don't know what to describe it as. It's almost like wasabi, um, ginger in Japanese cuisine, it gives that almost refreshing of the palate sometimes if you use it in that way so i agree with you i want to touch on something you said which is uh, i think in the world that we live in one of the things that we we don't realize and one of the reasons i do this podcast and one of the reasons we're talking about is entrepreneurship is often the solution and in it lies the freedom the free markets and the internet interactions amongst humans that actually should dictate the way we interact with each other because we have a group of people entrepreneurs particularly in food that all have to rely on each other and we figure out how to make it work okay we figure out how to support our farmers we figure out how to support our supply chains we figure out how to support the people that we care about and we put our business actions toward that doesn't mean if someone was in israel they would put their same business transactions towards the same group of individuals but what it does is that means that two people would choose to help their individual their businesses or be entrepreneurs on both sides okay here's one of the things that we lack when we we have conflict is that we are entrepreneurs there are more of us and more food entrepreneurs across borders than anywhere else in the world and there's more entrepreneurs than there are soldiers okay and we have more say in freedom and positivity and doing the right thing and figuring out things that maybe everyone wins because that's what we do as entrepreneurs we figure out how to make it so everyone wins and we as entrepreneurs we may feed ourselves last in that scenario but we win too and so i just want to just one of the reasons i'm really doing this podcast is because this and I am going. I am doing quite a few in Jerusalem and in Palestine because I think the food there and the tourism there is so important. Like the city's th like almost three thousand years old, some of them, and so like just imagine the history. And as Americans, we don't even understand what that is. We're so in the moment and we're so used to overabundance that we have no idea what it's like to be in that environment um, with the cuisine that actually utilizes things better than we do and is not as wasteful as we are as Americans and so there's all these type of things all these type of things we learn through entrepreneurs and restaurateurs and going around the world and you can have more in common through talking about food and branching gaps because it's what we do guys we all sit down and break bread with our family and our friends and the humans around us we all need to rely on farmers or our community or drivers or distributors or other entrepreneurs to make our businesses work and we can see here we're having a conversation by the way over instagram chat like we're just like okay let's try this on instagram phone call and it works 
okay? This is how, like, we don't need to do things in the way that we do them. There's other solutions. I don't have the solutions, but I am one that believes that the entrepreneurial free market and what entrepreneurs uh, are doing today all over the world are going to give that freedom to the world and help us have more tolerance and acceptance and and maybe think a little more logically and realistically versus emotionally. And so, um, and I get the spirituality of it all. So I'm not putting my thing in there, but I am saying that I do believe entrepreneurism is a solution. The more individuals like you, um, Natter, is, is in the world, going out in the world, going and spreading the positivity, going and spreading goodness, that's all, that's what matters, guys. It doesn't matter what's labeled on that. It matters that we're trying to improve, and we're trying to do positivity as entrepreneurs. I want to I want to see that we all have more in common in that fact across all boundaries and borders than we realize. Because as entrepreneurs, we're all the same. We want to help our communities. We end up trying to find solutions to better things. I'm not talking about sole proprietors or someone that just opens up a shop on the corner or just a restaurant. I'm talking about the same philosophy we're talking here, which is help the farmers. Um, so that's I'll just say that, and that's one of the reasons I do it. So let's talk about how you build this business. Um, how do you resource the products are you working already with the farmers since you're in humanitarian work that you knew them where to source the products from? Like, how do you go about building the pieces? You talked about the bottles not being made in Jerusalem. Um, are they made anywhere in that area? So how do you go across international borders? I mean, there's all of that mess and you're dealing with, you know, politics that can be a little hard that I can't imagine that's also now part of your business that you have to deal with. So how do you work through all of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, whenever we want to import something, we have... Everyone, I apologize. We are having connection issues with Palestine and Internet, and this happens about every 30 minutes always, and I'm trying to line up a lot of episodes out of Palestine as well as other parts of the world where their Internet connections, their time allotted for the Internet and electricity and stuff like that is a little bit different. Um, so with that being said, we're just going to have to deal with the ups and downs. This is going to be released as a part one. We'll answer the question about importation and dealing with that dynamics within uh, an occupied territory and what that means as Palestinians trying to get stuff through Israel and into the occupied territory of the West Bank and Palestine and what it is as an entrepreneur. There's a lot of politics involved and everyone can get into it and who has the right to do what. I'm just going to say this. The Palestinian food's been around for thousands of years. So has the Israeli style of food or Judeo food. And so all this food and breaking bread can bring us together. There's a lot of commonality. The anise that is known in the Iraq is the same as Sambuca or Orzo in, in Greek. You know, those are both all based off of anise. All the Mediterranean, we have commonality in Tunisia. There's a lot of blood that's shared there. There's a lot of wars and, and family legacies that we have a lot more commonality regardless of religion. And if we can use food as a way to spread entrepreneurism, free market, open-mindedness, because that's how we solve problems as entrepreneurs, we go solve problems with our ingenuity and 
leads to a positive future. So no matter where we are in the world and the individuals that come on this podcast, it is with the goal of spreading positivity. It is with the goal of planting seeds to have a better future. And we've all heard how an entrepreneur now in Palestine, while he was grew up in America, he's taken this same type of ingenuity. He's trying to be a humanitarian and do something right in the world. So there's the nonprofit side, but he's using the entrepreneur side of his abilities, which we didn't get into where that came from, and we're going to have to talk about it. And I hope he listens to this before we do part two, is that all of this stuff and all the things that I'm talking about transcends borders and boundaries. Entrepreneurism is a way to help the people around you. It gives purpose. There is higher purpose in it. There is the greater change that can be made over long term in our families, in our communities, with the people we believe in and identify with. And we can make a difference and have more peace in the world because everyone has to eat. We may not be all the same, look the same, have the same religion, ethical values, eat the same styles of food, like the same styles of food, like the same music. But the thing that we all have to do is we have to drink water and we have to eat food to survive. And most of us break bread around family and traditions. And that's what I'm trying to get everyone to see here. Entrepreneurism is a way for us to survive. It's a way we pass down positivity to the next generation, not only our own children, but other people's children. And it happens all over the world. So that being said, why is there so much conflict even within the United States, between our ideas when all we do is need to break bread together and understand each other. That's what I love about food entrepreneurs, is we can have conflicts that other people have, and all of a sudden we break bread, and we can come to an understanding of how do we make this positive for you, how do you make it positive for me, and how do we both do a deal, okay? And that's a little bit of being an Italian and the Italian mindset and the way of doing business is everything's always how does everyone win because that's the whole point if everyone can win and there's no losers then everyone makes money and everyone takes care of their family and the community and people are growing and so on and so forth as long as everyone agrees it's positive and we align our plan with God's plan however that looks okay so I appreciate this episode more than anyone could ever know and Getting to know Natter as I have is quite amazing just in little time, and I can't wait to get him to know him more. But that being said, thank you, everyone, for listening in. Please check us out on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. We're going to try to get part two done next week, um, which will probably release later in the month just because we're filling up schedule pretty quick because we're trying to release an episode a day which I believe we're pretty on schedule so far. Uh, but that being said, I do have hiccups when I'm dealing now dealing and trying to reach into third world countries, um, countries that don't have the infrastructure like the rest of us have, countries that have restrictions on power and outages and internet usage time and even cell phone and even zones that are in conflict that'll just cut off every once in a while. So these are the situations that entrepreneurs outside first world countries or privileged free market countries are dealing with they have to deal with a lot of different things of being an entrepreneur that we don't have to deal with our we have boundaries and and governments that set policies and standards but if you're in an area like palestine or the west bank in bethlehem that's in in conflict for the 
for the sake of that it's occupied um, and that Palestine is recognized. Um, and even though they don't have any land, they are occupying a territory. You know, however that looks, and everyone can look up the politics and make their own decisions. My point is this. It, my point is not what is happening. We cannot always control the greater good, okay? But we can influence it, impact it as entrepreneurs, and go make a difference in those places. And so one of the reasons I pursued Natter so much is because of this reason. I know that he's an entrepreneur out there making a difference in his community. I can tell by his Instagram. So that's what I'm talking about. He went somewhere. He's helping the farmers. He's helping the people make a living, even though the world, the politics, the way the world looks at Palestinian food and opinion is not great right now, even though it should be embraced just as much as anything else. And it's probably one of the oldest in the world, guys, food-wise. Baghdad, you know, Iraq, all these areas in the world have such ancient food and areas no different than Bethlehem and Palestine and the West Bank, okay? So I don't have an opinion of how anyone draws lines. That's not for me. I'm not that person. I'm an entrepreneur, and I believe that the lines can be broken down through the spread of freedom and entrepreneurism and that we can find commonality in entrepreneurism. I believe that the fight for freedom and breaking down boundaries and everyone becoming together as humanity and us fighting for freedom and going out there and trying to live on other planets revolves around food and being food entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in general. Why? Because we need to take whole foods that we can grow and animals we can grow and eat and live with and have a circular relationship with us if we ever leave this planet or we outgrow it or some of us stay behind and some of us go. And whatever happens evolutionary after that, maybe we split into two different species at that point. Who knows? But we need to have an open mind that this is a possibility and we always need to be prepared that that is part of God's plan that we will outgrow it based on the way population is going. Okay, so we need to have more openness that we're going to get closer to each other and there's going to be more of us compacted that don't agree eye to eye in smaller spaces in the world. No different than what's going on. And we need to find ways to come across those and not be so angry all the time or in conflict and food does that. Okay, so here nor there, but here's what I think. I think that we should expose ourselves just as much to the food in Bethlehem as we do in Jerusalem. And I think that we should just expose ourselves to just as much to the food in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, as we do in Bethlehem, West Bank, Palestine. Just saying, we need to expose ourselves to the world of food. It helps us get an understanding of culture and it helps open our eyes to the world. And we should travel and see the world. And if you do it through food and you do it through locals and not tourist traps, you get an understanding of it. You get the exposure to the world that you need. So I hope everyone tries the spirit that we're talking about. I hope everyone takes the time to learn about Palestinian food. We're going to be talking a lot more about it on this episode. That doesn't mean I'm siding with anyone, guys. I What I'm trying to do is really emphasize that there's all this culture, all this tradition, and it lives in the food, and it's a start for you to understand without having to study a history book, without having to go back and and spend hours doing whatever, or go to an art museum, go live the food, understand the food, understand the traditions and how long they've been around. And maybe our perspective and our perception is a little bit off 
holistically and maybe the way we're looking at this entire problem worldly is wrong also considering look at food look at food how it comes into countries and there's melting pots and there's hybrid food and there's fusion food across cultures okay just saying i can have italian fusioned chinese food they're not culturally the same not religiously the same not anything the same not politically well maybe okay so barbecue creole french cuisine french gets mixed in and hybrid or fusioned into a lot of different cuisine vietnamese food especially because of the cultural influence so let's just think about it that way it's meant to be entangled it's meant to be meshed together food is meant to be influenced by other food we just talked about it on the kosher episode with the holy smoke kosher barbecue okay it's meshing texas barbecue with the of kosher that doesn't mean one's wrong or one's right it doesn't that's not what we're saying here what i'm saying is we need to expose ourselves to all the understanding of why all these things exist and stop trying to attach such black and white labels to everything go break bread with people learn get out of your neighborhood and out of your comfort zone with your that all the kids that you go to school with are the are all the families that your kids go to school with go to a neighborhood that's uncomfortable go eat food that's uncomfortable with your family expose them to something that they might not like maybe they will not just thai food i'm talking like you know moroccan food i'm talking tunisian food i'm talking Palestinian food. We're talking about all sorts of different cuisines, Ethiopian food, that we should be exposing our children to all over the world. Why? It gives us kindness. It gives us patience. It gives us understanding for the rest of the world. And so it's important that we do it through food. With that being said, you can find us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. You can find me at Justin Bizarro. On Instagram, B I Z A R O. You can find this podcast at Justin at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. And again, you can find us on Spotify or anywhere else you grow yourself through podcasts. So thank you everyone for listening in. Um, keep kicking ass. Keep kicking butt. Keep doing well. Keep going after the things that you want in life, and keep going to the places to make a difference. It doesn't just start with volunteer. You have to do more. We have to get involved. We have to give people a means to help them grow themselves. So one of the things that I love about this episode is it's a dream big enough to fit all the other dreams in it eventually. The farmers, the supply chain, the people that process the stuff, the the jobs they're going to create in Palestine. Okay, the positivity is going to create. The proudness, the integrity, you know, all of those things matter. The character So, adios everyone, I'm out.